From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Healthcare leaders are all asking themselves, what could or perhaps should be different because of COVID-19? The strategic plan most leaders were ready to implement in January is probably out the window. And I don't know of a single health system or physician group that isn't looking to digital health as a major part of their new 2020 initiatives. And by the way, it's not just hospitals and health systems. There are a whole host of third parties that are looking at the way that incumbents responded to the pandemic. And they're thinking to themselves, I might be able to do better. So today, I want to talk about digital health and the state of healthcare disruption. To do that, I've brought two guests, Tom Castles and Megan Zweig. Both are joining us from Rock Health, which, if you don't know, was the first venture fund dedicated to digital health. Megan, Tom, it's great to have you on Radio Advisory. Thanks so much, Ray. Thank you, Ray. It's great to join the podcast. Where are each of you dialing in from? I'm dialing in from San Francisco, which is where the Rock Health office is based. Most of us are hunkered down somewhere in the Bay Area, but we have Tom holding it down on the East Coast. Yes, I'm the East Coast presence for Rock Health, and I'm currently dialing in from the Castles Home School. <laughs> yeah, how's that going for you? For me, great. Uh, for my kids, who knows? <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and dive in a little bit. First, I'd like each of you to tell me a little bit more about yourselves and what you actually do at Rock Health. Megan, let's let's start with you. Yes, awesome. So Megan Zweig, I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Rock Health. In terms of what I do at Rock Health, I think it might be helpful to give you a little bit of context about Rock Health as a whole. So in addition to being a venture fund, we invest in early stage digital health companies. We also have an advisory services business. And the reason that we have that business is because we saw that the vast majority of these digital health startups are ultimately selling into and trying to scale across enterprise healthcare companies. So they're selling to pharma, to health plans, to providers, and really trying to transform the way that those organizations run their businesses and approach adoption of technology. And so we felt it was really important not just to support the entrepreneurship side of healthcare, but also to support the enterprise companies that are really trying to keep pace with innovation and adopt a lot of these solutions in their own organizations. In terms of what I do, of course, I, you know, with my advisory board background, I do research. So I oversee all of our thought leadership, market research, oversee our marketing team, as well as work really closely with all of our corporate partners to help them advance their digital strategies. That's great. Tom, tell us a little bit more about your role. Sure. Uh, I am the president of Rock Health. Very grateful to have started just at the beginning of March. And I've promised everyone that I did not bring COVID to San Francisco. But I am responsible for two things. One, uh, executing the strategy for, for our fund and advisory services. And two, really actively participating in our consulting work with life sciences, health systems, and health plans to really shape uh, the future of what increasingly 
folks are calling their digital footprint. So that's where I'm spending most of my time. And also a proud former advisory board employee. So glad to glad to be back home. That's great. Megan, you mentioned that Rock Health actually makes some decisions about which companies get funding and how much. I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit more about what makes for an attractive investment right now? So when we think about kind of what are we looking for, we're kind of different from later stage investors because we're really looking at who is this team? Do they have the healthcare expertise? Do they have the tech expertise that's going to make them incredibly well-rounded and just understand the complexity of, as we know, reimbursement, regulation, business models in healthcare. What's different about now is, I mean, COVID-19 is all over everyone's pitch decks right now. I think everyone's recognizing it's not business as usual. They need to position themselves as being relevant right now. But what we're really looking for is longevity, right? We don't want them to just know how do they fit into the space of meeting an urgent need right now, but how are they going to fit, obviously, into the world a year from now, two years from now, and how can they project how healthcare is going to transform and what's the need that they're going to be fulfilling longer term? And so we really try to push on that when we're, when we're sitting in on pitches with these entrepreneurs. And Megan, I'll admit that I pretty religiously read the funding reports that Rock Health puts out every quarter. I'm wondering if you can tell me what funding looked like for digital health in general at the beginning of 2020 versus what it looks like now. Yeah, definitely. So this first quarter was actually one of the biggest quarters that we ever had in terms of venture capital flowing into these digital health startups. So there was $3.1 billion invested across 107 deals. Wow, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money, and it's a, it's a ton of momentum. And then, of course, you had all this momentum, and then, I mean, literally kind of the, the world dropped, dropped out from under us. But you have this interesting dichotomy, of course, where the macro economy is going to say to startups, it's going to be incredibly difficult to raise capital this year. On the other hand, you already mentioned kind of the urgency of pivoting to a world in which we can provide care at a distance. And so obviously, digital tools are becoming more important than ever. I think just last week, we had over $400 million invested in digital health startups. There is a ton of capital going into some of these companies that are at the point at which they can scale. So they've already found their product market fit, and there's a lot of confidence that with more capital, they're going to be able to reach the needs of health plan members of health system patients. I think there's always greater risk in early stage investments, the stage at which we invest. And so I think one question that I have, we haven't done the analysis yet, so you can wait for our, for our H1 report, which will come out in early July. But my question is, are we going to see way more capital invested in those late stage companies because they're founders we know, they've found their product market fit? When you invest capital, you know what it's going towards and you kind of know that it's going to help them scale versus are we going to see less capital invested in these early stage founders just because of the risk inherent of those companies potentially not finding that product market fit, not finding the right business model and ultimately failing, which is which is kind of just a, a, a product of, of operating in the startup space. So Megan, let me reveal the question that's on my mind, particularly because it's one that hospital health system physician group leaders are asking me. Their question is, how does COVID impact the level of disruption that we might see in the healthcare market? Do you think it will go down, stay the same, go up? Tom, what do you think? 
I think it already is going up and will continue to go up. I'm talking to medical groups who are proactively shifting to a strategy of doing 40% of what they traditionally have done in office out of their offices. I think health systems are going to be forced to think the same way uh, with regards to where we are providing service and how we're providing service. The framework I see for health systems is you're either going to try to beat disruption with a strong incumbent strategy, or you're going to embrace digital disruption and market disruption and go to a model where you're meeting your patients where they are when they need you. And I hope most health systems are preparing for the latter. Hmm. It sounds like funding aside, COVID-19 has presented incumbents of, of all stripes with the opportunity to actually be a disruptor as opposed to waiting to be disrupted. And I don't think that there's any part of the industry that exemplifies that more than telehealth. Big picture question that I actually want to get both of your quick responses to before we go deeper. In your opinion, is telehealth a flash in the pan or a long-term trend? Definitely a long-term trend, although I think we need to shift our thinking from assuming that it's going to replace the doctor-patient visit with a virtual version of the one-on-one doctor-patient visit. I think we're seeing a ton of models that incorporate remote monitoring, that incorporate asynchronous communication, whether through text, video. So it's not going to resemble the same thing of when you go into the doctor's office and interface directly with them. It's not just going to be video visits if we truly want to scale the capacity of providers. Tom, what do you think? Long-term trend? Virtual care is a long-term trend. Televisits are a utility. What I would say around telemedicine in particular, right now we have a lot of stovepipe companies, primary care, urgent care, behavioral health. I think there's going to be aggregators in that marketplace, and I think that's going to be healthy for the telemedicine experience. So Tom, you bring up a good point, and that's that the virtual care space in general can actually cover a whole host of interactions, right? Megan, you talked about providers' instinct to just replace the in-person visit with a video visit. But of course, there are a lot of options. We actually had an episode earlier in Radio Advisory that, that talked about the landscape of telehealth more broadly. I'm curious, if you look at all of the different ways of that virtual care can trend in the future... Are there any particular use cases that you and Rock Health are putting bets on? So one thing we're thinking about is a lot of digital transformation starts with replacing an analog transaction with the digital version of that. So instead of calling up your PCP office to make an appointment, now you're you know logging into an appointment application from your phone or your computer. But what we see is that just replacing analog with digital, it's not transforming the experience and it's not necessarily creating a continuous seamless experience for the patient. So imagine if I'm feeling ill, I can go into a symptom checker into an application. It's directly going to potentially connect me with a telemedicine visit so I can talk to somebody on demand. 
maybe something is seriously wrong and they actually need to connect me with a rideshare application to physically take me to an urgent care clinic and I'm able to book that appointment within that same application. You're essentially creating a really integrated experience for the patient so that they don't have to be navigating a bunch of different applications, phone calls, trying to understand what's covered by their insurance or who has availability for an appointment. All of that is included in this digital front door experience that's going to get them to the level of care that's going to be appropriate. I really like that because what you just described is sort of a digital episode and not in the episode that health systems typically think of, right? You have a primary care visit, maybe you get some images, you have a surgery, then you or recover from that surgery and go to physical therapy. Instead, think about the episode from all of the digital interactions that might make that seamless experience. We'll be right back with more Radio Advisory after this short break. Hi, I'm Chris with the Radio Advisory team. On behalf of everyone at Advisory Board, thank you for everything you're doing to battle COVID-19. We want to help you celebrate the bright spots. Perhaps you've been amazed at how your teams, your peers, or your leaders are supporting you. Or perhaps a patient's words reminded you of why you do what you do. What bright spots are you seeing? We want to hear from you. Share your story at advisory.com slash thank you and view our message of thanks. Tom, I want to hear where you're placing bets, and I also kind of want to hear where you're not placing bets. Sure. One area that I think is A, very attractive, and B, kind of a passion for anyone who's been a caregiver is is really focused on technology and services firms who are focusing on not just patients, but the family caregivers who are working usually two full-time jobs to care for people that that they love dearly and doing so with no safety net, no system of care. There are some very interesting models coming out right now that actually create the equivalent of the wealth manager for the family caregiver. Something that's not attractive is a standalone bricks and mortar, new kind of concierge type model. The concierge service is not coming to the bricks and mortar. And so what we're looking at, especially with some of the care models that are coming out, is how are you engaging the person as person? not simply making a more convenient access to walking through your doors. Are you tracking any of the factors that might accelerate the adoption of virtual care as a true front door to the delivery system? Absolutely. The first factor is, frankly, access. And one thing that just isn't changing is the supply-demand mismatch for specialists, especially neurology with the aging population, psychiatry from pediatric to geriatric, those trends are going to make it absolutely impossible to meet demand if we aren't 
focusing on the type of virtual care that is not video to video, that is, is truly asynchronous in nature. You're so right. I actually had a physician leader tell me last year that in order for a patient to get an appointment with a specialist, it would require an act of God. And of course, it's a joke, but that shows you just how bad access was. And that was before COVID-19 created a bottleneck and a backlog of patient appointments that really haven't happened for the last three months. You know, it's funny. When I was a young researcher in healthcare advisory board, a CEO of a large orthopedics group told me that the thing uh, she was most proud of was that it was a 30-day wait for the next available appointment. I think that mentality is going to be crushed by folks who embrace virtual care and access that makes sense for human beings. And no offense to that wonderful group, but you're going to be left by the wayside because people are going to go where they're welcomed. Mm -hmm. I also, I want to talk about one access challenge that we're going to need to face when we are transitioning to use of technology as a point of access for care. There are big disparities in terms of access to broadband, access to, you know, whether it's your tablet or your phone or a computer, a private place, a private safe place that you can you can engage in some of these visits or even asynchronous communication with providers. And so I think just as a country, like as a nation, we need to reckon with not just are we reimbursing for virtual visits as Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, but it's no use to reimburse for a visit if somebody doesn't have access to the underlying technology to take part in that visit. I could not agree more. When I talk about digital health and telehealth together, I'm always a little bit wary of what that transformation means for the vulnerable, the underserved, the rural populations. So Megan, how can the industry actually simultaneously push for greater utilization of digital services while also improving health equity? One thing that we do look for as investors is whether or not the founders have really thought through how they're going to reach different types of populations. Is their solution going to be applicable to more underserved populations, maybe the Medicaid market, which truly is a really big market that's ripe for disruption? We work with close partners like Health Tech for Medicaid who are really thinking about how do we encourage entrepreneurs to better understand the Medicaid market so they can increasingly craft solutions for them. I remember chatting with founder of Omada, Sean Duffy, about how there's a lot of misconceptions about people's use of technology. There actually isn't, you know, huge underutilization of cell phones, for instance, among the Medicaid market. There's just a need to sometimes adapt content into different languages to make sure that understood by people of all different educational backgrounds and reading levels. And so you just have to take those design factors into account when you're designing for that market. 
And Tom, I think you can speak to some of our recent investments, but really thinking through what are the challenges of that particular population that tends to kind of have, especially when you think about the Medicare market, has more comorbidities, is kind of less likely to be compliant with a particular care plan. Sometimes kind of we, we want to do the right thing, but it's really hard to find the motivation to do so. And sometimes these digital tools can really tap into that underlying motivation and make the right choice the easy choice for people. We are very proud of the companies that we've invested in in the last year for their focus disproportionately on underserved populations. The end of 2019, we invested in a company called Arene, who is a, for lack of a better term, a digital pharmacy. They're working with the state of Oklahoma to create a two-way conversation between patients and physicians to understand, are medications really working for them? Can we afford these medications? What should the right medications be? We invested in a company just recently announced, um, Wealth. And Wealth is a technology for improving full care plan adherence using behavioral economics. And really, their focus is working with state Medicaid plans, with FQHCs, and with health plans and health systems writ large on how do we capture the best way to get a job done when, frankly, human nature doesn't act exactly the same for every type of person. So we feel like that personalization and broad emphasis on who are the end users is something that we love to invest behind. If we want to see more diverse companies and companies built for these historically underserved populations, we also need to invest in more diverse founders. We need to see more diversity among investors and also more diversity among the leadership of these enterprise healthcare organizations. Historically, we've tracked in the gender equity space, the very slow movement that we are making in terms of women representation on boards in C-suites as founders of companies, as partners in funds. This past year, just 14% of the digital health companies that were funded and based in the US were led by women. And this year, we really want to broaden our focus and think more about different dimensions of diversity, thinking about race, thinking about ethnicity. We're doing some work that will lead with Ivor Horn, who's an incredible leader in this space, to really capture data because we have the data around gender equity and the data doesn't exist to just understand broader diversity in health tech. And so we really want to dig into that to understand what are the barriers that are inhibiting these founders from finding funding, from finding the right clients, from scaling their solutions, because the talent is out there and we need to find the right bridge to get the capital and non-capital support to them. I could not agree more. And frankly, I think it will be really refreshing for our listeners to hear that innovation and digital health isn't just something that exists in wealthy millennial populations in New York City. And it's also something that everyone can participate in. And I'm happy that Rock Health is trying to find that diverse set of leaders that are going to create the next generation of digital health innovation. So Tom, Megan, 
Thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. This is frankly a really fun and inspiring conversation to have. Before I let you go, I'm asking every one of my guests to take a couple of final moments and give some advice to healthcare executives. So Tom, let me start with you. What should leaders in healthcare be focusing on right now? Leaders in healthcare should be focusing on the people who they serve. These are people who are right now learning what it means to access healthcare at a distance. These are people whose conditions are worsening because of lack of access to sufficient chronic disease management. And these are people who are struggling, as all of us are, with anxiety and mental illness and really need the folks who are leading life sciences companies, health systems, health plans to be thinking about how do I engage and really focus my company on solving the problems post-COVID. We have lots of moral obligation to serve in the moment the needs of the pandemic, but we should be careful that we're keeping an eye on the big trends that are coming at us next. That's great, Tom. I always feel very inspired after you finish shocking. Megan, no pressure. What advice do you have for healthcare leaders right now? If Tom said focus on your patients, the communities you serve, I also want to emphasize focus on the people that work for you that are serving your communities. We really need to think about the humanity of those folks and what they're going through right now. There's a lot of conversation about the mental health resources and support that can be provided to not just providers, but all types of folks that work across healthcare. But I also wanted to touch on how their world is changing so dramatically. I mean, they're having to deliver care at a distance. Even, you know, when you think in the in the life sciences industry, you have people that work in pharma and med device that are now trying to do their jobs from a distance when they are used to doing it in the OR next to the surgeon or in the physician office. And so just thinking about how do we support this genuine change in how our workforce is shifting, how they do their day to day. What types of training and support are they going to need? Because a lot of these changes are going to be sustained. They're not just for right now, and they need to feel supported too. I think you just one-upped Tom, so that was a perfect answer. Nicely done. Well, thank you both for coming on Radio Advisory. We will absolutely have to have you back on the podcast very soon. Thank you, Ray. Thanks so much, Ray. We've just begun to scratch the surface on what the future holds for digital health innovation. The industry isn't backing down from investing in digital health. And while these investments have to improve the consumer experience and even the caregiver experience, they also have to serve the needs of a diverse population. If your organization is looking for a catalyst to change, let this moment be it. And remember, we're here to help. You you do have also like a weird, weirdly smooth jazz voice. <laughs> I will take that as a compliment. <laughs>